Welcome to the Pint Glass Football Podcast. This is Pint Glass Football. We talk NFL and college football. I'm your host, Brad Fowler. Follow us at pintglassfootball.com. If you're new to the show, hit that subscribe button. What's up, PGF Nation? We are back with another great show today. The 49ers crush the Eagles. What does it mean for the NFC playoffs and the MVP discussion? Packers knock off the Chiefs and more from Week 13. College football playoff chaos. We're going to give our thoughts, and of course, we've got betting locks of the week and a lot more to get to, but joining me to break it all down, my co-host, Alex Higdon. Alex, what is going on? No need for a long introduction. Let's get right to it, Brad. Yeah, you're right. We've got a lot to get to, and let's start right off the top with the game that everybody's talking about, 49ers, statement win over the Eagles in Philly. Eagles came out of this game, Alex. They had two decent drives to open the game. 49ers defense made some stops, forced some field goals. Niners offense was kind of slow out of the gate. But what stood out to me was Shanahan making some adjustments in game, started attacking the middle of the field, and the route was on. You nailed it uh, completely, Brad. This was, to me, was completely about coaching. We made some points in regards to how We thought the respective team that we picked would win the game. I did pick Philly, and my whole point was that I thought Jalen Carter would be a person that could wreck this game because that offensive line for the 49ers is weak, specifically on the interior. But Kyle Shanahan and the offensive line coaches and the offensive coordinators, along with Kyle Shanahan, made incredible adjustments, knew what they were doing, They came in ready to play, and those players were very well prepared and knew exactly what to expect from this team, and they showed up and showed out. You had players running free all throughout the the game, and I said the Eagles look like a team that was being coached by a D2 a coach at that point in time. That's not an indictment against him. I'm just saying the coach, the level of the coaching mismatch from what I saw because when they came out of halftime, halftime, because remember, it was only 14 to 6 at halftime. That's salvageable. And they did not make any adjustments. They came out, looks like, with the same offensive and defensive game plan. I do believe DeAndre Swift did get hurt, but you also had Kenneth Gainwell. You also had Boston Scott. So there still should have been some semblance of a running game there, but they just look like they were outmanned and outmatched. And the adjustments that the 49ers made, they took off. And the Eagles looked like, unfortunately, like a grounded eagle in a cage and couldn't go anywhere. And they just, the route was on. But Debo Samuel receiving and running the ball, when you have him running on all cylinders doing that, you're not going to beat this team. And you're absolutely right. Kyle Shanahan attacked the weakness of this defense, which is the middle of the field. And I'm going to say one more thing. Darius Slay and Bradbury, Darius Slay looks like he's lost a step. And I get it. There's an age and things start to catch up. But he's not the Darius Slay that we saw a year ago. A year ago to now, he's not the same Darius Slay. There's something going on there with him. I don't know if he's hurt, but he's not making a lot of plays. If this was my team, I would have to take it back to high school and these Everybody on the defense will be running laps because there were missed tackles all over the field. And that's 
that's high school one on one. You need they need to run laps because what I saw was just bad tackling all over the field. Yeah, I think I saw a stat. It was like five missed tackles in the second half. Don't quote me on that, but I think I had read that somewhere recently when reading about this game. You're right, Alex. Debo was a monster. Man, he backed up all that talk he did about this Eagles team. He backed it up. He was huge in this game. He made play after play in this game. He was unstoppable, but he turns into a running back when he gets the ball in his hands. He is a physical downhill runner. He's not just fast. He's a just an unbelievable player, a versatile weapon. He does so much to unlock this offense for them and unlock that playbook and to allow Shanahan to do so many different things and run so many variations. It just makes this team so hard to defend. George Kittle was big in this game. Brandon Ayuk made plays. Brock Purdy had an MVP level level performance in the rain, on the road, versus this Eagles pass rush. He was avoiding pressure and throwing perfect strikes all day long. And it's not like he was sitting in these perfectly clean pockets all day. They actually did put some pressure on him several times in this game, but it just seemed like he has such a good feel for getting out of the pocket, avoiding that rush, and making plays. It started out a little shaky, but after that start, he went 19 of 23 the rest of the game, four touchdowns, no picks. I mean, he was almost perfect in this game. I don't think it's crazy to say, I think Purdy needs to be in the MVP discussion. No more excuses about the system, the team, or that he was a seventh rounder, the guy's playing at an elite level. And I think it's just time that more people recognize the level of play this guy's playing at, the accuracy, the anticipation. He's just money. I mean, he just is playing at such a high level. I know he's got weapons. I know he's got play calling and all that stuff. I'm not trying to take away anything from his teammates. He's got a great team around him. But, man, he is the straw that stirs this drink. There's no doubt about it. And I think he's really underrated, Alex, with his feet and his mobility. I kind of mentioned that. but. He does such a good job just avoiding pressure, moving around in the pocket, buying extra time for his receivers. I don't think people talk about that enough and making those throws down the field. Now, McCaffrey just continues to show why he's absolutely the best running back in the NFL. Such a weapon for this team. Between the tackles, outside the tackles, those zone running plays, catching the ball. I mean, there's just nothing this guy can't do. The Niners scored touchdowns on six straight possessions. They were a buzzsaw on the offensive side of the ball. And the Niners' number one ranked defense, they were just as good. They got after the Eagles. They took away the run game. And we know when the Eagles can't run the ball, that's when they're in trouble. And they knew it. They bottled up that ground game for them. They smacked Jalen Hurts around a few times in this game. They only gave up two touchdowns in this ball game. One of those was with about five minutes to go, and the game was basically over. This was the most impressive win of the year in the NFL because we know how good the Seagulls team is, especially at home. I mean, we can't overstate this win by the 49ers. This was a statement. Absolutely. And just to wrap it up, you know, I really want to be key on talking about some of the unsung heroes. Bullocks, who is the defensive backs coach, because when you watch the game, the Philadelphia Eagles offensive line held up. It's not like everybody was running ruck shot through there and he was getting sacked all over the place. He had time. Those routes were just simply covered and he could not find any place to go. There were several times I counted where he had four to six seconds standing in the pocket, not moving around, standing in the pocket where he had an opportunity to make a throw. There was simply no one open. 
So I think, I believe his name is Darren Bullocks, who is the defensive back coach. He deserves a lot of credit, as does Steve, Steve Wilkes, in terms of the defensive plan that they came up with, which covered all of those routes. So Jalen Hurst did not have anywhere to throw the ball. So kudos to those guys and those defensive backs coach that nobody ever mentions because that was a real coaching clinic that I saw. Again, the credit does go to the players and usually to the head coach because of what we saw and how the score played out. And However, but these behind-the-scenes defensive positional coaches deserve a lot of credit. This team was very well prepared to walk onto that field and confident. And when you can walk into a stadium and an opposing stadium, we have to reiterate that they went into Philadelphia. That's not an easy place to play. Going in and then put on a clinic the way that they put on one, and they stomped out the Philadelphia Eagles. That's an impressive win. And you're right. You have to talk about Brock Purdy in the MVP race. You also have to talk about Christian McCaffrey. However, I think in a situation like that, you always have two people like that. They end up canceling each other out. And then here you go, Tyreek Hill. Here's your MVP. But that's for another conversation. But yeah, again, kudos to the Niners and that coaching staff because I think they, they deserve a lot of credit for what we saw on their field. Yeah, no doubt about it, Alex. And it kind of brings me to the Twitter poll questions that I put out for you guys. Twitter poll question of the week. I had two of them because this was maybe the game of the year so far. It was trending on Twitter, and I thought it was a good opportunity to put out some questions. So are the 49ers the best team in the NFL? At PGF Podcast on Twitter, 75% of you guys said yes. Pretty overwhelming vote there, and I get it because this was, like we've talked about here, a statement win for them. Christian McCaffrey for MVP was the second poll question. 53% said yes, 47% said no. So that one was pretty evenly split, which I understand. And I think you made a great point there, Alex, when you've got two guys like that that probably deserve to be in the discussion for MVP, I think there is a little bit of a canceling each other out. And when you look at this team as a whole, there's so many good players that not one player really gets the shine, so to speak. Last Sunday got me thinking, Alex, it got me thinking about last year's Super Bowl teams and the Eagles and the Chiefs. I just don't think they're the same teams that we saw last year. They're just not. And this Chiefs team, they just don't have enough pieces on offense, especially at wide receiver. They're just not that explosive offense that we're used to seeing. That's not this team anymore. It's a totally different team now. They have to be more methodical on these drives. They have to run the ball more than I really can ever remember seeing an Andy Reid-led team run the ball. The Eagles defense, when watching this game versus the Niners, it, it just isn't the same either. You made the point about the secondary and some of their key players. The secondary is bad. I mean, it is not very good. Statistically, eye test you know, analytics, whatever you want to look at. It's not a good secondary. They got exposed big time in this game. The linebackers are bad, and that's another reason why the middle of the field was so vulnerable for them. Now, their front four is great, and they're deep on that defensive line. They've got a lot of guys that can rotate in. They can get pressure, and they can get after a lot of teams in this league. They can get physical. They can bully pretty much anyone in this league, but they don't have the firepower clearly at this point to hang with a team like the Niners because this wasn't a fluke. This was absolutely not a fluke. This was an absolute beatdown. They are a way, way better team than the Eagles right now. Now, do I expect a better game the next time they play? Yes. Can the Eagles beat this team? Yeah, I think it's possible that they could beat them, but this game was a blowout for a reason, and it's because the Niners have the better defense and more weapons on offense. Now, Shanahan, 
also put on a coaching clinic. You talked about it in this game with his play calling and his in-game in-game adjustments. And I mentioned the Chiefs too because let's talk about the Sunday night game. Packers get a big win over Kansas City. Jordan Love, third straight game, Alex, where I think he looked really good. He is starting to really look comfortable in this offense, starting to show that confidence that you want to see in a franchise quarterback, a young quarterback that you can build around. So before we jump into this game, Alex, how many quarterbacks in the NFC would you take over Jordan Love right now? Oh, put me on the spot there. I probably couldn't come up with, so if there's 16 teams on that side, I'm definitely not, I'm probably going to not come up with more than maybe six to eight. Just, I'm, I'm ballparking that right now. I'm not looking at anything. Okay, you know what? Let's do it real quick. Not Philly, not Dallas. Giants, yeah. So not Philly, not Dallas. That's two. You know what? I really only have three, maybe four, being that Kyler Murray's playing a lot better. So I'm not taking him over Philly, Dallas, San Francisco, and maybe Arizona. Everybody else, yeah, I think think I'm willing to take a shot on him. Yeah, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because when I started thinking about this, Alex, and I I wanted to get your take because I thought the same thing. I thought, look, if I'm building a team tomorrow, and I had to pick an NFC quarterback, there's only a couple that are going to go ahead of this guy. And you mentioned you've got Dak Prescott, Jalen Hurts, Purdy. Maybe. And maybe and, and maybe Kyler. Yeah, and I would say Jared Goff, you could make a case for. He's played some really good football, especially the last couple of years. But also, you know, he's a little bit older now. So, you know, if you're talking about going forward, obviously you'd probably want to take a younger quarterback. I don't know if it's crazy to think I might take Jordan Love over Kyler. Now, not necessarily pound-for-pound talent. We know how much talent Kyler has, but I still think there's some question marks as far as leadership, attitude, and obviously there's some question marks around his health and if he's the guy that can stay healthy with his size. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what we saw from Jordan Love, again, we talked about it last week. We'll say it again. We did pick Green Bay. And and just really quick, as it stands right now, Green Bay is in the playoffs as it stands right now. But we probably were a year early on this. But as this, as they got a running game, as Christian Watson has now come back, because this is the second year in a row, his rookie year, he came in injured. And then all of a sudden you saw Green Bay take off once Christian Watson came and he and Aaron Rodgers start to connect. It was the same thing with Jordan Love. He came back a little bit earlier than he did last year, and they are still connecting again. And this year you had, excuse me, this game you had a little bit more of a running game. Aaron Jones is still out, but A.J. Dillon, 18 carries, 73 yards. He was there providing thump in the running game as he is a bruiser in that running game. And the way that Jordan Love handled that, the poise, and again, under duress at certain times, that throw that he had off his back foot, understanding to give his guy, I believe that was Romeo Dobbs, if I'm not mistaken, down the field to give him a shot at making a play. That is the things that endears you to fans. That is the thing that endears you to bigger contracts from your organization, showing that you're a guy that understands situational football and knows what to do. And Jordan Love has taken yet another step in showing that he belongs and they don't need to be looking for another quarterback, that he's the guy that should be leading this team into the future. Yeah, he was impressive. 25 for 36 in this game, 267 yards, three scores, distributing the ball like a point guard, getting it out to his playmakers, throwing the ball with touch, throwing the ball with accuracy and timing. They have a really talented group of young of young pass catchers. You mentioned Christian Watson. He is becoming the player 
that I projected him to be coming out of the draft. I was really high on this guy. I loved the upside that he showed, and he is really starting to put it together. And this team is starting to put it together. And with their schedule down the stretch here, they have a lot of winnable games. According to FanDuel, they now have a 68.3% chance to reach the playoffs. It's been a pretty awesome turnaround for the Packers. And I think if you're a fan of that team, you've got to love what you're seeing. Now, Kansas City struggled both sides of the ball in this game. Talked about it a little bit, but the offense just simply not good enough in this game. And it's really kind of been a struggle all year for them. Mahomes averaged only 6.4 yards per attempt. Those explosive plays that we're so used to seeing in this offense, they just aren't there anymore. I think they're really going to have to make some adjustments down the stretch. Yeah, you know what? The one thing I want to say about Kansas City, and it's something that we talked about, and I love to just go back over right or wrong, where this pod was right or wrong. But one of the things that we talked about, one of the guys that we pointed out early on was Rasheed Rice. And I even talked about him from a fantasy perspective, as well as a real life game that he, a situation, he was going to come on after week eight, another game, nine targets, eight catches, 64 yards. He's catching fire at the right time. Patrick Mahomes is going to gain a lot more confidence and he's going to have to take a lot more shots in terms of giving Rasheed Rice, from my perspective, Maybe one or two of those Marquez Valdez-Scantling routes that he seems to not be able to catch, even though that, that was a bad missed call. But I think Rasheed Rice deserves a shot at one of those throws to show that he could be a big-time player in this offense, and then we can watch things play out from there. So, Brad, I wanted to talk about and just really bring in there. It was an exciting game. I know maybe a lot of people may not have been paying attention to it, but that Indianapolis Colts versus Tennessee Titans game, interesting game all around, but I really want to focus on two things. One, Gardner Minshew, and maybe this would be a good Twitter poll question. Can Gardner Minshew lead the Indianapolis Colts to the playoffs? That's the first thing. The second thing is Shane Steichen is a person that we did not talk about when we gave out talking about midseason awards. He now has to, from my perspective, he too also needs to be thrown into the coach of the year running as well. If he's able to help guide this team with with losing Anthony Richardson, with Gardner Minshew at the helm, is he able to help guide this team to the playoffs? He needs to be considered for coach of the year. The fact that they are in the playoff mix right now, I think you're right. He deserves to be in the coach of the year mix and definitely needs to be talked about more because what they're doing is impressive. One guy that stood out in this game was Quiddy Pay, a guy that I was really high on coming out of the draft. But he is starting to play some really good football. In his third year now, he's starting to put it together. He had a really nice game. Pair of sacks, forced fumbles. I mean, he's he's starting to get after guys. So it feels like the Colts are just getting the most out of these guys right now. And that's what really good coaches do. So I think it's a great point by you, Alex. Alex, I want to jump to last Thursday night because we had a Cowboys-Seahawks game. Cowboys beat the Seahawks in a close game. Cowboys were down 35-27, heading into the fourth quarter. Dak Prescott came up clutch, had three scoring drives in the fourth. Really made some big-time plays down the stretch. Seahawks had no answer for C.D. Lamb. Now, the defense wasn't very good. That was really what was the most surprising to me in this game, that Dallas defense that's been really good, one of the best defenses all year. They got pushed around. They gave up 28 points and more than 300 yards through the first three quarters of this game. 
finally came up with some big stops in the fourth quarter. What did you make of this win by Dallas and Seattle coming up short? Well, really, it's more on the Seattle side. I just thought that they were one big play, not necessarily big touchdown play, but they were one big you know, first down converting play from really making this a game and winning this game. I believe that final drive, they did come up big. Once again, Deron Bland showing that he wants to be mentioned as defensive player of the year and get a big contract as well. But, you know, DK Metcalf looking like a monster with that Dallas defense. You did mention that Dallas defense was suspect. Uh, Now, I don't know. We would, I would have to really dig into the numbers to see if there's any type of trend or anything like that. But I will say this about Dallas. This running game, to me, is still an issue. And the game where you needed to maybe run when the scoring was getting out of control, you need to maybe try to change up the tempo, the inability to have a guy on the team that can really just eat up yardage is not showing itself. And I think that's going to be a problem for them as they enter into the playoffs. On the Seahawks side, I thought this was a good showing from the Seattle Seahawks. However, defensively, it was disappointing. I'm not sure. And I haven't, I haven't, uh, and that's my fault for not taking a deeper look into the All-22 because I wanted to really see how much Devin Weatherspoon was on CeeDee Lamb. And I know they move him all over the place, but I really wanted to see if there were any adjustments that were made to try and stop what they were dialing up for C.D. Lamb because 17 targets, 12 catches is a lot for one man to not be able to game plan, especially for a Pete Carroll coach team. I expected more from him to be able to shut some things down and they just were unable to. But to be fair, neither team was able to shut down anything on either side. But you are to your point. Uh, that Dallas defense really was shaky all throughout that game until they came up with the one big play. But And Geno Smith not sacked. So that's that's kind of concerning when the front four is literally a lot of what you expect from Dallas to get a lot of pressure. Seattle, they're going to need to put their foot on the gas, pedal to the metal, if they're going to try and make a run at the playoffs because now they're in dire situation. Yeah, for the Cowboys, I mean, they finally beat a team with a winning record. That's kind of been the knock on them. I don't know how impressive it actually was, though, because this Seahawks team, even though they played a good game in this one, they're free-falling right now. They've lost three straight Four of their last five, their only win, they squeaked by a bad commander's team. Now, Geno Smith, you talked about it. He played big most of this game, probably the best game we've seen from him in several weeks, and a lot of it had to do with a clean pocket. There was really no big splash plays from that defensive line from Dallas. I don't remember Micah Parsons making any big plays in this game. Like you said, he was pretty clean, and he was able to make plays down the field for them, but he couldn't come up with the big throw in the fourth quarter. DK Metcalf had a big game, like you mentioned, but he disappeared in the fourth quarter too. The Seahawks' final three offensive possessions of the game all ended on a failed fourth down. Houston Texans get a big win, and they end the Broncos' hot streak. Houston's defense, man, they played lights out in this game. I think that was the biggest takeaway for me, Alex, just how solid that defense looked. Broncos were 0 for 11 on third down in this game. D'Amico Ryans, man, he has instantly improved that side of the ball. So impressed with this guy. I feel like we talk about it every week. These young guys, Derek Stingley, Will Anderson, they've played great. He's getting a lot from these young playmakers on the defensive side of the ball. They picked off Russell Wilson three times in this game, including a dagger in the end zone when they were trying to make the comeback. The Broncos' playoff hopes, I think, took a major, major hit in this game. Nico Collins, man, he had a career day, went off in this game. And 
He was on my list of the top five most underrated players for 2023 article. I wrote that article this offseason. It was in our newsletter. I wrote, quote, CJ Stroud throwing him passes in 2023. Collins has the potential for a breakout season, having already set career highs in receptions, receiving yards, and touchdowns last year. The stage is set for him to shine. Alex, I'm taking a victory lap on this one. As you should. One thing that did come out this game, Tank Dell, losing Tank Dell for the year, broken leg. Hopefully it's a clean break and they're able to reset him. He'll be back going into next year. So that's a big loss for Houston. However, it gives the opportunity for Robert Woods to become more of an integral part because that's a name we have not mentioned in all of the weeks that we've really talked about the Texans. We've talked about Nico. We've talked about Noah Brown. We've talked about Tank Dell. We did have not really mentioned Robert Woods and Robert Woods is a very good veteran receiver on this team and they're happy they should be grateful to have him in a situation like this where he can step up and now also bringing back Damian having Damian Pierce along with Devin Singletary makes them even more formidable from my standpoint and then we saw with Derek Stingley Jr. we knew what he was coming out of college this looked like a great game in terms of what he was able to do on the Denver side of things, this was simply because they were unable to run the ball. And I think that was a game plan strictly sought out by Houston Willis. They were going to stop the run, which has been my point of emphasis when it comes to the success of Russell Wilson. Throwing off of the run and allowing him to use play action is when Russell Wilson is at his best, is when we get wonder, you know, dangerous, and when he becomes, he looks like the elite quarterback that we all thought he was in Seattle. And they basically stuffed the run. They did have 118 yards rushing, but Javante Williams had only 46 yards, three and a half at a clip, and then Russell Wilson was second with 44 yards at 4.4 a clip and a touchdown. And the reason that I, I mentioned what was happening with the Colts and what we're talking about now with Houston is similar to what we know in the AFC North where we're looking at Baltimore, Pittsburgh, and Cleveland that are all set up to go into the playoffs. Jacksonville, Indianapolis, and Houston are a game apart, and Indianapolis and Houston are, are tied at 75 with Indy currently in the playoffs right now. So the AFC North and AFC South, these next Five weeks are going to be exciting football to watch what's happening in those two divisions as each of those teams, the top three teams, are a game apart in the south and two games apart in the north, and they all play each other going down to the wire. Jake Browning tore up the Jaguars' defense on Monday Night Football. Speaking of the AFC South, Alex, this win, it actually keeps Cincinnati in the playoff mix. This is a team that was kind of left for dead after the Joe Burrow injury. Being from the Northwest, Alex, I was actually really familiar with Jake Browning. A lot of guys didn't know who this guy was, but because I saw him play a bunch of times at Washington, he was a guy that always showed a lot of talent and a lot of poise, throws with accuracy, throws with confidence. And look, Alex, he completely outplayed Trevor Lawrence in this game. Now, I, I know Lawrence got hurt late, but Browning was the one making the big plays in this game. Absolutely. So I'm going to start here. Jamar Chase had 11 catches for 149 yards and a touchdown on 12 targets. If you saw this game in the beginning, Jamar Chase had was five for five on catches for like seven yards. <laughs> so they were force feeding the ball. I, I was like, wow. I was like, wow, they're really trying to do something with Jamar Chase. And they just kept plugging away at it plugging away at it and then boom coming into the second half he caught that he caught that long pass and was off to the races and then there was a nice mixture of the run with Joe Mixon and who is Chase Brown I don't know I don't I don't know if that's a fantasy alert but 
If you're in a deep league and you need a running back, you might want to go look at Chase Brown, who had nine carries for 61 yards. But a nice mixture of Joe Mixon, 19 carries, 68 yards, two touchdowns. But Jake Browning, 32 for 37, 354, and a touch with a 115.5 QB rating. And he also ran twice for 22 yards and a, t- and a touch. So that's two touchdowns and 376 yards in total. Well, I don't know if it was Jake Browning or Joe Montana out there, but this is looked like one of my Madden games when I just grab somebody off of the wire and I just say, hey, come pass, and it's the man behind the controls. So I don't know what was going on there that there was no adjustment by that Jacksonville Jaguars defensive coordinator, the defensive staff, to try and stop what was happening because that's just un- that's unexcusable for me, a team that has high hopes to be moving forward and to put themselves in a situation where they could not stop Jake Browning. And that's not an indictment against Jake. That's just what I expect from teams that are in sitting in positions to really take control of their own destination to try and do these things because Cincinnati was kind of on the down and out after losing Joe Burrow, but to come in here and keep their playoff hopes alive because now they're six and six and Jacksonville is eight and four. So now we get to see how much and who Jake Browning really is. And you know what else is funny about this? This is the ninth quarterback that's been hurt in Trevor Lawrence. Hopefully, I think I saw it was graded as a high ankle sprain. I think a grade two high ankle sprain after he had the MRI today. So that's so that's good news for Jacksonville. But this is the ninth or 10th starting quarterback that has been hurt in terms of what teams are going to have to consider going forward and how much pressure they want to put on these quarterbacks as they have high playoff hopes and going deep into the playoffs how they need to handle these quarterbacks going forward. So this has been a very odd year across the board. There is no clear-cut, quote-unquote, QB MVP that I would pick. I think it's kind of wide open. There is no huge, even from a fantasy standpoint, there is no QB that's like, this is the guy that you would take. It's just, this has been a very even-keeled year. I don't believe in any number one team that's just far outweighs the other one. I think everybody's bunched up into one and then the cream will rise to the top. I think we are in for an exciting finish, an exciting race to the Super Bowl because I think these teams are all close together and a lot of backups are showing they might either should be getting their own team or they should be getting a nice hefty paycheck at the end of this season. It's a good point, Alex, because I think the backup quarterback position has been really under the spotlight this year and it's just showing how important it is to have a solid guy back there. Because we've seen we've seen it from so many teams, and we see it every year. But I think this year there's been maybe a little more than normal. But when you have a competent guy that you can trust to take over for a few weeks, maybe a five week stretch or longer, you need somebody that can keep you in the playoff mix, that can keep you winning games and being competitive in games. Jake Browning, a guy that nobody knew about for the most part until Monday Night Football, comes in and plays at a really high level. And we've seen a lot of other guys, like you mentioned, Gardner Minshew. And some of these other guys who are coming in and keeping their their team in games. Jets, I'm looking at you, by the way. But for the Jags, I got to jump back to the Jags for a second because I don't want to take anything away from, from Jake Browning. It was awesome. It was awesome to see. It was awesome to see this team respond, to see his teammates, Jamar Chase, and these guys step up and help out a young quarterback as well. They were making big plays. But you can't get outplayed by a backup quarterback if you're the number one pick, Trevor Lawrence. I'm sorry, you were a generational talent. He has not become the player we expected. Now, he's not a bad player, but he just has not become that generational talent that most of us thought he was coming out of Clemson. 
I mean, we're almost done with year three here. We're coming on the back end of year three. I have not seen enough from this guy yet. I talked about it a couple weeks ago. And if you want to become a legit contender in the AFC Jacksonville, you cannot lose these games and you can't get outplayed by a backup quarterback. You know, you're absolutely right. And I I made this point last week and I'll bring it up again. What you say about Trevor Lawrence is absolutely correct. But similar to what we saw from Patrick Mahomes in that Super Bowl when he was missing both tackles and he just had to go out there and they just were running rough shot over everybody with Tampa Bay. Trevor Lawrence is not dealing with the same exact thing, but he's dealing with a, a rookie right tackle and I'm not even sure who the backup left tackle is because Cam Robinson is out again and in that interior is just a bunch of guys right now. He's dealing with that and he's, you know, 22 for 29, 258, two TDs. You know, from a stat standpoint, that looks good. But if you watch the game, there were just it just didn't look fluid to the point of where we thought this quarterback should be to Brad's points. But I think a lot of what we're seeing is just a lot of the issues that are happening up front. That running game hasn't gotten on track either. So I think it's a combination and it's all stemming from the trenches nip and tuck that's happening here when we thought Trevor Lawrence should be taking a bigger step this year. He's kind of maybe taking a step back or looking like the same quarterback he was last time. But on the other side, the other thing I do want to say, this is important because in, though we're not going to get in depth about that game, but the Steelers losing to the Cardinals, this game can now have some implications. And if Jake Browning can build off of this game at six and six and the Steelers at seven and five and Kenny Pickett getting hurt and looking like he's, I believe he's going to be out for the next four weeks. If Zach Taylor can rally the troops behind Jake Browning, mixing some more of this running game, they may have a chance to make some noise, whether to make a final push or be spoilers for some teams in their own division, because this team is something to be reckoned with. And if they can build on that and with the Steelers now having to turn to Mitch Trubisky, I'm not even sure of that. That actually may be a blessing in disguise. I actually don't know because I just don't believe in Kenny Pickett. So maybe this is a good thing, but who knows what's going on with the Steelers now? We know that Mike Tom is a great coach, but they may now have a chance. So you're saying there's a little bit of a chance, those of us who love Dumb and Dumber, that they might be able to play spoiler or maybe even be able to put themselves back in the mix for the playoffs. Alex, let's wrap up with the game ball. Who gets your game ball for week 13? That would be the person that we just spoke about, Jake Browning. Coming out of nowhere, again, like I said, 32 for 37, 354, one touch, and then another two carries for 22 yards and a touch as well, leading the Bengals to victory when everybody thought the Bengals were done because Super Joe Burrow, and I'm using air quotes when I say that, here come the Bengals, here comes Zach Taylor, putting this team, putting a game plan together, helping Jake, showing that he can actually develop somebody, Jake Browning being a guy. So I want to give Jake Browning all the kudos in the world. You deserve it. Alex, I know you like to sneak in some fantasy football takes about how your team does each week. Well, I played some underdog fantasy on Monday night, and Jake Browning actually helped me win some money playing on the Pick'em Contest. Let's just say I had one of my best primetime nights on underdog fantasy so far this year, and Jake Browning had a lot to do with it. My Week 13 game ball, Alex, is going to go to cornerback Derek Stingley Jr. for the Houston Texans. Stingley allowed zero, that's right, zero catches on four targets, broke up a pass, one tackle, and two big-time interceptions off Russell Wilson, helped the Texans get a big win 
over the Broncos. I mentioned him briefly when talking about D'Amico Ryan's, this defense. This this was a guy, if you guys remember, just a couple years ago, top five draft pick. He actually got drafted a couple picks ahead of Sauce Gardner. And at the time, when I was doing the draft breakdown and the coverage of the draft like I always do on this podcast, I said, I love this kid. He's my number one corner. And I got a lot of pushback from a lot of people on social media that thought I was crazy for ranking him ahead of Sauce Gardner. Now, look, Sauce has been great. And he's one of the best young corners in the league. But Derek Stingley, now in year two, is starting to show why he belongs in that discussion as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the defense, what D'Amico Ryans is doing, Derek Stingley being put in position to make the plays that he's made, critical plays in that game, a game they needed to have as well because Denver was on fire. But to keep pace with what Jacksonville is doing and how this loss for Jacksonville now impacts what hap- impacting what happens with Houston and with Indianapolis winning, they needed this game, and he came up big. So kudos to Derek Stanley Jr. Underdog Fantasy is the easiest place to play fantasy sports. I personally love the Pick'em game. Just pick between two and five players to build a Pick'em entry. Pick whether your favorite players will have a higher or lower stat total in this week's game for a chance to win big. You can win up to 20 times your money in a single night. Download the Underdog Fantasy app and sign up today with promo code PGF. That's promo code PGF to get your first deposit doubled up to $100. The official ticketing app of Pint Glass Football is now SeatGeek. I can't recommend them enough, guys. I've been using SeatGeek for years. You want to go to a game this season? SeatGeek is here to take the confusion out of buying tickets, making sure you get the best seats at the best prices. With SeatGeek, you'll never have to worry about overpaying for tickets again. How? They put a 0-10 to score on each ticket, so you know you're getting a good deal. But here's the real game changer. You can get $20 off your first ticket purchase with the code PGFPOD. That's right, $20 off with code PGFPOD. This season, make every game day epic with SeatGeek. Download the SeatGeek app and remember to enter the code PGFPOD to grab your $20 discount. You know what's important when you're having a good time? Staying hydrated. And that's where Liquid IV comes in, the category-winning hydration brand that's fueling your well-being. With just one stick of Liquid IV, you get two times faster hydration than water alone, plus five essential vitamins to keep you feeling your best. And let's not forget about the convenience factor. The packaging is perfect for on the go, whether you're tailgating or just hanging out on the couch. But what really sets Liquid IV apart is the amazing flavors. Personally, I'm all about the Concord Grape and Lemon Lime. And with three times the electrolytes of traditional sports drinks, Liquid IV is made with premium ingredients to give you the hydration and nourishment you need. Get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code PGFP at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code PGFP at liquidiv.com. 
Zencaster is the ultimate web-based podcasting solution. It provides high-quality audio and video podcast production and hosting. With a full suite of professional tools, podcasters can seamlessly record, produce, and publish studio-quality content all from one dashboard. Zencaster's post-production process takes the headache out of audio production. Set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. Coordinating all your guests to record in person is painful and tedious. Easily invite up to 11 participants per recording with one click. Go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code PGFP, and you'll get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Professional. I want you to have the same easy experiences I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story. Alex, every week there's a player, a coach, a ref, someone in the NFL or college football that makes us say WTF was that. This week, Alex, I've got three WTF moments. I had a lot to pick from here, so let's get to them. Steelers fired offensive coordinator Matt Canada a couple weeks ago. We've talked a lot about that and the change that they've had on the offensive side of the ball, and it's been better. The offense has been better to their credit, but fourth and goal on the one-yard line versus the Cardinals, and they run up the middle out of a shotgun formation. Alex, I know you've mentioned how much you hate this type of play call. They run the ball with Najee Harris, who is, by the way, shockingly bad in short yarded situations to begin with, but they're in shotgun with only one wide receiver out wide. Two other wide receivers are lined up on the ends of the line. Why not use tight ends there? Uh, what are you trying to do there? You're going to put two wide receivers in basically in the tight end positions? Why line up in an obvious run play and then try to get cute with this shotgun formation and wide receivers blocking in a goal line situation. Just terrible. Uh, terrible. And of course they get stopped. Of course they do. Because who runs out of shotgun on fourth and one? You do that when it's third and long and you do the quote-unquote typical draw play to see if you can catch them off guard. I know that's the reason that they do it. I know that's the thought process. But Running in short yardage when everybody knows what you're trying to do out of shotgun, to me, I just, I cannot understand. I know sometimes it works. I don't know what the percentages are. I just don't know, especially the Steelers. That is not Steeler football. Chuck Noll rolled over in his grave when they did that. I don't, I don't think they knew what was going on because that is not what you should be doing on fourth and one if you are the Pittsburgh Steelers. I'm very, I'm ashamed of you, Mike, uh, Mike Tomlin, for letting that happen. <laughs> absolutely absolutely my second wtf of the week eagle security guard big dom on the sideline we all saw it shoves niners linebacker dre greenlaw now after greenlaw body slammed Devonte smith it, clearly it was an unnecessary roughness i mean not 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 something you should be doing i'm not defending that and and i get being upset about the play i get it and no, Greenlaw shouldn't have responded by putting his hands in the face of this guy. But an Eagle security guard on the sideline pushing a player in the middle of a game and 
starting this whole thing is just ridiculous. I mean, for a minute, it looked like it was going to literally get out of control. Uh, we were texting Alex during this game, and you texted me in all caps, what the hell just happened? <laughs> and what is happening? I think we were both saying WTF, man, WTF moment all around. Okay, let me just break down a few things. And that, that's that's a thing of mine. I, whenever everything is going crazy and nobody's making sense and I don't know what's going on and the people talking don't know what's going on, my thing, my, my me response, what's happening? So I, 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 so I say that to say I can't be watching the game. I can have a perspective and the announcers may not know what's going on, but I have a perspective. Or I'm confused and I don't have a perspective, but the announcers are saying the perspective, then I can kind of evaluate the two. But we can't be in a situation where I don't know what's going on and they don't know what's going on. And they're saying names like Dom and he's nowhere <laughs> in my program to say, who's Dom? I'm looking, is he the offensive line coach? Is he the quality control coach? Is he an intern? <laughs> Who is Dom? And why are we talking about, why is Greg Olson talking like we know who this person is? He's big, he's burly, so he must be an offensive line coach or a defensive line coach. No, he's security on the sideline. I don't know what's happening. I did not understand. I was completely confused. I was befuddled, beloved. But thankfully, Greg Olson explained to us who Dom is and that he's security for the Eagles and he's been with the team forever. And... Typical Eagle fans, typical Philly fans, and I'm talking to you. You know who you are. You cheered this on as this man was ejected and walking <laughs> off of the field. And Dom today probably improved his Instagram followers by tens of thousands simply because he was on TV during the game. He was a talking point during the game. And then he was a talking point on every single talk radio show, a radio show and TV show the following day. So maybe Dom is now a local celebrity and he doesn't have to pay for Italian for the rest of his, for the rest of his career as an Eagles employee. <laughs> yeah, he was trending on Twitter. No doubt about it. This guy became famous overnight. Uh, just crazy. The whole situation was absolutely nuts. And I've got one last WTF, Alex. With about seven minutes left in the fourth quarter on Monday Night Football, that Jacksonville game and Bengals game that we were just talking about, Jacksonville was forced to use its second time out of the half after a water boy wrongfully took the field during a penalty. Now, Brandon Sheriff had been called for a false start on the play before, and the ref saw the trainer coming off the sidelines when he wasn't permitted. Doug Peterson told reporters after the game, Evan Ingram was asking for some water after a play and he just ran onto the field. Now, if, if Peterson had not used a timeout, the refs would have flagged the Jaguars for unsportsmanlike conduct. Alex, I, I've, I've seen a lot of football, <laughs> but this was a first. Yeah, I, I guess there needs to be sideline control because apparently security can't handle anything. We need to have sideline judges that are just simply paying attention to the sideline to notify when security should interfere and have uh, something to say. And when water boy should have, or girl should have something to say as well. I don't know what's going on in the NFL. This was nutty. This was nutty. These two last things we talked about were just <laughs> nutty situations that are probably never going to happen again in the league. And they're probably, you know what the league is going to do? They're going to over 
analyze the situation and say, oh, nobody should be on the sideline. There's too many people on the sideline. No, there's been MC Hammer was on the sideline. This is not a thing. Like, let's not overanalyze this. I mean, I heard people talk about, you got to go. You got to hammer down on this. You got to. It's okay. It's an anomaly. It happened. It's all right. It's not a thing. Please, let's not overanalyze it and keep talking about it. Make this something for the competition committee to talk about. You're apparently going to take up our entire summer to talk about if we should keep the tush push or not. Please don't add this onto it as well. Thank, please and thank you. College football playoff chaos. Man, things got crazy after championship Saturday. Pretty much all hell broke loose, Alex. Alabama upsets Georgia, and it created this chaos. Three teams, Michigan, Washington, and Florida State, were all undefeated Power 5 champions, and undefeated Power 5 champ has never been left out of the college football playoff until now. Now, Alabama had a strong case as the SEC champion. Texas really kind of threw a wrench in all of this because they beat Alabama in the regular season and then became the Big 12 champion. That meant that any CFP field involving Alabama was also going to have Texas based on that head-to-head that head -head result. And of course, as we know, Florida State gets left out. That's the big controversy here. They went 13-0, ACC champ. They also beat LSU and Florida in the non-conference. Let's start there, Alex, the selection, the four teams. Let's dive into this. Do you think that, for one, do you think Florida State should have made the college football playoff? And what do you think of the committee's decision on the four teams that did make it? So when you heard the commissioner, well, let me give my personal thought process on it. Personally, I didn't want Florida State in the college playoffs. Number one, should they have made it? Yes, but I'm glad they did it. Now, my reasoning behind that was I did not think that your third string quarterback was going to be any type of competition for, let's just say, if Georgia won or whoever they would have to go and face that would probably be Michigan, wherever that game would have been, because they would have probably been more than likely been uh, four. I didn't want to see that game. You would have gotten destroyed. I'm sorry. I know you have Jared Verse and those guys in that defense, but no. And then I've always heard of, and in full transparency, I've had my, my cousin played for Florida State, so he's a big Florida State, big Florida State fan. So he's been arguing back and forth with me about this. And I and he was talking, I heard a lot of people talking about, well, Ohio State did this and they did that. Yes, Ohio State beat Wisconsin in their championship game 59 to 0. They left without a shadow of a doubt that they should be in the college playoffs. Florida State has shown, if we just talk them, because this is there's a lot of style points that go in. This is not just wins and losses. There's style points that matter to this as well. After your quarterback was injured, you barely beat my team, Florida, in the swamp 24 to 15, and you barely beat Louisville 16 to 6. These are not too impressive wins enough for the committee to say that you should be in. And that's what the commissioner spoke to as well. And looking at Florida State, they did not show us that they were powerhouses that should be in the college playoffs. And I'm paraphrasing there. Now, the real thing about it, Brad, that I'll say is that kind of threw me off a little bit. I did not expect Georgia not to drop, not only to drop out, but to drop to six. I still expected them to be in maybe drop down between anywhere between one to three, but I did not expect them to be absolutely out. And then 
kudos to us. We deserve a lot of credit and I lo- and I like patting ourselves on the shoulder. We had been saying for weeks, watch Alabama continue to win in some way backdoor themselves into a playoff spot. Not only that, but we also both told you we don't believe that Georgia can beat Alabama, and that happened as well. So sometimes it's okay to give yourself a pat on the back, and here I am doing it for us. Yeah, that's all right, man. I've been taking victory laps the last couple of weeks. No problem there. I don't see any problem with it. I'll take the L when we when we lose. I'll take the L when we win. I'm going to take the win. You know, that's the way it is. Alex, I, I'm with you on a lot of these points, though, because the argument for these teams and they even said this, the committee has said this several times, it's the four best teams, not the four most deserving teams. And I know that's tough, right? That That's a really tough thing to quantify because then there's a lot of people that push back and say, well, well, do the games really matter and this and that? Look, is Florida State one of the four best teams? Can anybody really honestly say that Florida State is one of the four best teams? Because I think, honestly, even if Jordan Travis was healthy, I'm still not sure they're one of the four best teams even then. But without him, there's no doubt that they're not one of the four best teams. Because like you said, they have not been a very dominant team. I'm sorry. When you lose a guy like Jordan Travis, they weren't the same team. They didn't look like the same team. And you made a great point. Because if they blow out Louisville by 30 points, guess what? They get in. It's that simple. If they would have blown the doors off those guys, they would have gotten in. And you made the point about Ohio State back in the day. It's a great point. We saw Ohio State with a third-string quarterback, Cardell Jones. He ends up starting, and they win 59-0 versus then number 13 Wisconsin, by the way, a better team than Louisville. In the Big Ten championship game, they still clearly looked like a top-four team. And that's the key word, look. You have to look the part. That's part of this, right? It's not an exact science. Some of this is just eye test. Some of it just comes down to who we think looks the best. When Ohio State got in, clearly it was the right decision because they got into the playoff and they won the whole thing. Florida State didn't do that. Not just that. They did it in a much weaker conference. Look, no disrespect to the ACC. It was easily one of the worst, if not the worst, Power 5 conference this year. So it is what it is. I feel bad for Seminoles fans. I feel bad for Florida State. It's really unfortunate. It really is. And, if, you know, for Florida State fans, I know it sucks. But we have to realize, too, that this type of scenario could have happened any one of these years under this format because it's always been four teams with five Power Five conferences. So, theoretically, if all five Power Five conferences went undefeated, or I should say had an undefeated champion, one of them is getting left out no matter what. So, we knew this was always going to be a possibility. Now, you talked about the teams. We've got some great matchups. I want to jump into those in, in a minute. But do you think these are the four best teams? I know you mentioned Georgia. Georgia being paired up with Florida State, not an accident. That was not an accident either because the committee did that on purpose, and they did it to prove a point that they weren't a top-four team. Georgia is going to stomp Florida State. And I think Ohio State, I think Georgia, and I think Oregon, I think all those teams would stomp Florida State. Absolutely agreed. Now, the one team that I do have trepidation about is the number three team, which is Texas. But I true, I understand the committee's thought process, and we want to put Alabama in, but we can't without putting Texas in because of that that week when Texas beat Alabama. However, 
I, I, I would believe that Georgia would be Texas. So I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have an issue. Well, I don't want to say I wouldn't have an issue, but I thought, I never thought that Georgia would have dropped out, but having Alabama in, you had to put Texas in. That's the one team where I feel that Georgia should be in the top four with Alabama as opposed to Texas. I think Georgia is another team on a neutral site. Georgia would beat Texas as well. So I think Georgia would have been the other team that I'll put in, but understanding why Texas is in because they put Alabama in. And I do think they have three of the best teams in terms of that. And I can, I'm pretty sure some people can make an argument for Washington, but I'm not, but I'm not, I think they've, they've earned their place in terms of where they are. But Texas would be the one team that I would have trepidation about and saying moving forward, saying these are the four best teams. Yeah, this is going to be debated and talked about for a long time. I'm just glad. I think a lot of people are. I'm just glad that we're going to the 12-team playoff. I am so excited that next year we get a 12-team playoff. It's really unfortunate that we couldn't have started it this year because, man, what a perfect year this would have been for a 12-team playoff, we would have had some unbelievable matchups and some unbelievable games because I think this year, maybe more than any other year in the CFP era, you had a lot of debate and you can make a lot of strong cases for several teams to be in this top four and you can make great points why they should and shouldn't be. And whenever that happens, I think when you've got a team like Georgia, you've got a team like Ohio State, and you've got some of these other teams that are just outside looking in, that you can look at and make a legitimate case that, hey, they might be the best team in the country. I do think these four teams create some exciting matchups, some exciting games, and some things to talk about. Let's take let's take a first look at these four games, and we'll jump into these games a little closer to when the playoff goes on. We'll make some picks as far as you know who we think is going to win these games, who's going to win the national championship, and all that stuff. We'll do that in a few weeks when it gets closer to the game time. But I thought we could kind of take our first glance at the matchups here, Alex. Number one, Michigan. Number four, Alabama. Not your typical Bama team. You know, this is a team that has flaws. This isn't that Bama team. This isn't one of those teams that Saban's had in years past that just looks like a buzzsaw and could just beat anybody. They've they've hung around with some bad teams, and they needed a Hail Mary to beat a bad Auburn team. They barely beat a group of five team, but they stepped up big versus Georgia. They have playmakers on both sides of the ball. Quarterback Jalen Milrow is the most improved player in college football. I don't even know if that's debatable. The growth we've seen from this kid has been incredible. He's an athletic player, a dual threat. Now, Michigan, they've been probably the most consistent team all year. They're a throwback. They're an old school team. Smash mouth. They like to punch you in the mouth. They like to run the ball and play great defense. This is an interesting matchup. Alex, what are your thoughts on this game or your initial thoughts on this one? You're absolutely right. I mean, there's not a lot of top tier players on the team that we're talking about that's being talked about as this guy or that guy. This is probably one of Saban's best coaching jobs in terms of coaching players up after having that run of QBs, running backs, and wide receivers, that heavy skill set position on the offensive side where he really had to coach this team up, have his position coaches, have his coordinators really coach their guys up and scheme correctly. And I think we're going to see Saban at the top of his game to make a point. I'm here now. You tried to count me out. You kind of left me for dead. I'm here to make a point. 
not to just say, look what I did. I made it. No, I'm going to really show you I am who I am and why I am and why people talk about me in the ilk in which they do. And I think he's going to make a point of reference. And as of right now, I'm taking Bam in that game. Yeah, Alex, this is going to be a fun one. I think it's going to be low scoring. I'm going to dig more into the tape on this game, and I'll I'll make an official pick here in a few weeks. I think it's going to be a really fun matchup. I think the quarterback position is something to watch. Which quarterback plays the better game in this game is going to matter a lot. Different styles, but both have high skill sets and can make a lot of plays. It just kind of, I think it's going to really depend on which one makes the big plays, which one's better on third down, which one keeps the chains moving in critical situations. I think is going to go a long ways in this game. I know one thing I'm leaning towards the under. I think this is going to be a defensive battle. I think it's going to be low scoring. I think special teams is going to matter in this game, but what a fun matchup. Let's jump into the other game here. Number three, Texas. Number two, Washington. Now, these teams actually played last year in the Alamo Bowl, and Washington won last year. They haven't lost since. Now, they've had some close calls, but those two wins over Oregon, those were impressive because Oregon didn't lose to anyone all year except Washington. Oregon has one of the most talented rosters in college football. They were actually a heavy favorite in the Pac-12 championship game. That tells you the kind of respect Vegas has for that Oregon team and how talented they are, yet Washington got the big win, and it was really because Michael Penix, this is a guy who is deadly accurate. He's got two big-time NFL caliber wide receivers. The defense, which has been a question mark at times for them, has really played better down the stretch in the second half of the season. Now, on for Texas, they might have the best roster money can buy. I mean, this this team is loaded. I talked about it earlier in the year. They are going to have a lot of guys get selected in April. They have an explosive offense. Quinn Ewers at quarterback, worthy at wide receiver. They've got the best defensive line in the nation. Big-time playmakers on this roster. But the Texas secondary is shaky. That is something I'm circling in this game here because – If Washington and that offensive line for the Huskies, if they can protect Penix, I think he could have a monster day in this matchup, taking shots down the field with those NFL caliber wide receivers. Unlike Michigan and Alabama, I don't have a jump off the porch thought press on it. And just please remember, Alex Higdon does deserve the right to change his mind at any point in time before after the game, and you can't say anything about it. But anyway, I don't know about these two teams. I really want to take a look at a further look into Michael Penix Jr. And then I really want to look at the Washington offensive and defensive lines because that's what I really want to see before I really can even make any type of assessment. I just haven't seen Washington enough. I, I'm more familiar with Michigan. I'm more familiar with Alabama. And I'm very familiar with Texas. But Washington, I'm really not outside of maybe the two times that I saw. Though. I want to take a further deep dive into the, the offensive and defensive line. And I want to look at some Michael Penix tape. I have a few questions, but I really, which really go really more towards his draft stock, but I'll use it to kind of look at his game to see what I need to see before I make a decision as well. And you know, Brad, before we get out of here, there was, I saw a few QBs that seemed like they were entering. Well, they didn't seem like it, but they're entering the transfer portal. And I'll just run through them really quick. Aiden Childs, Dante Moore, Cameron Ward, Will Howard, Riley Leonard, Dylan Gabriel, Kyle McCord, DJ Ukulele, Will Rogers, and Tyler Van Dyke, all quarterbacks that are 
going into their final years of eligibility and that'll all into the, excuse me, I think most are in their final year of eligibility and then entering the transfer portal. Interesting year that we will have the off season, the college off season to talk about as well as where these quarterbacks will end up, especially some of them like a Riley Leonard who was talked about or Will Rogers that were talked about in terms of being NFL caliber quarterbacks that'll be changing teams this off season. Yeah, it's a great point, Alex, and it's definitely something to follow here in the offseason. And even in the next couple of weeks, as some news breaks on some of these guys, we'll have some some takeaways and some thoughts as some of these guys decide where they're going to be headed because the transfer portal, as we've talked about on the show, it has changed the landscape of college football. It has really changed how teams are built and how quickly you can turn a program one direction or another By either losing a guy or bringing in a guy, it can really change the whole dynamics of your team. And some of those guys you mentioned, some big-time quarterbacks on that list, some of those guys are NFL talent quarterbacks. Some of them are just high-level college quarterbacks, but all of them are able to be difference makers for somebody. So it's a great point, Alex, and it's definitely something we're going to have to follow in the coming weeks and into the offseason. Alex, every week we give out the helmet sticker, of course. This is going to be the last one, so to speak, of the regular season. Championship Saturday helmet sticker. A guy that we mentioned here and a guy that's going to be playing in the college football playoff, Texas quarterback Quinn Ewers, 35 for 46, 452 yards and four touchdowns against Oklahoma State. Those four touchdowns went to four different receivers, including one to Tavondre Sweat who I've written about in our newsletter. Once again, go subscribe, guys. It's free at pintglassfootball.com. A guy that I wrote about because Sweat is the best defensive tackle in the entire country and most likely a first-round pick in April. That was pretty cool to see him on the offense catching a touchdown. But dominant game from yours. I mean, this kid really lit it up. Texas was on fire. This game was never close. And side note here, Texas fans, Alex, hilarious watching them boo Brett Yormark on the podium and then chanted SEC, SEC (laughs) repeatedly while he was presenting the trophy. Man, Alex, it's going to be fun to see what Texas can do in the college football playoff like we talked about and breaking down Quinn Ewer's game for the NFL draft in April. Last week, 2-0, starting to heat up a little bit. I don't want to jinx it. Starting to heat up a little bit on these picks. I took Lions and laid the four points versus the Saints. You took the Cardinals on the road and plus five and a half versus the Steelers. That's 2-0, and a winning week for us again, Alex. Starting to heat up. Let's keep it going. Who you've got for your lock of the week this week? I'm going to do something taboo, but I'm feeling good about it. I'm going to take the Raiders and lay the three points over the Vikings. Raiders at home over the Vikings coming off of a bye. Both teams coming off of a bye at that. But Vikings traveling west to the Raiders at home. They are The Raiders are favored by three. The typical three that you get when you're playing from home. So that means they're really, this team is really evenly matched. So I'm going to take the Raiders over the Vikings. And then a prop bet on Josh Jacobs to get over 100 yards. And I have a bonus one. The Chiefs over the Bills 
lay the two and a half. I'm going to take the Chiefs over the Bills. They, 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 that was a trap, a bit of a trap game. One of our friends actually called it out before the season even started. He said they would lose that game to the Packers because they'd be looking forward to the Bills. But I'm giving you a twofer here. Take the Chiefs over the Bills, and I'll give another prop bet. Rasheed Rice goes for over goes for over 100 yards as well and two touchdowns. But the Chiefs win big over the Bills, which also helps prove my other point, right, that the Bills will not make the playoffs this year. Alex, we're thinking alike here. My lock of the week, Chiefs, minus two and a half over the Bills. I am totally with you. I'm on the same page all the way. Bills, they feel, to me, it feels like they put everything they had into that Eagles game, knowing they basically had to have that one to stay alive for the playoffs, and they came up short again. Chiefs on the other side, coming off of a loss, now at home, Big bounce back game. Need to win this game to stay in the mix for the one seed in the AFC. Huge game, and they know it. Mahomes, after a loss, go look at the record. Pretty impressive stuff here. Lane under three points at one of the best home field advantages in the NFL. Everything points to the Chiefs here. I'm going big on that one as well. And before we get out here, Brad, you know, coming up with their art, obviously there's a huge game you know, individual game coming up, Eagles versus the Cowboys. And so the Eagles are on back-to-back primetime, excuse me, not primetime games, but back-to-back big-time games. So that game is going to be must-see TV. That is the Sunday night game in Dallas. I also want to mention, and we talked about a little bit this earlier, the Buccaneers play the Falcons. And we know that that AFC, excuse me, that NFC South race is tight. There's a game in between those. That is also a huge game coming up. We talked about the Colts and what it meant for them, as well as the Bengals. They face off at 1 o'clock next week. And then also the Jaguars and the Browns. So there, like I was saying before, there are a lot of teams where there's a lot of things and they can control their own destiny. And these last five weeks are going to be a lot of exciting football. I think every single week we're going to get about maybe six to seven big-time matchups because there's a lot of individual play and conference play that are going to be dictating the playoffs, whether it's who has the bye week or who's actually going to make the playoffs as well as seeding as well. So there's going to be a lot of critical games that we're going to be able to follow up on as we go. All right, Eagles-Cowboys, who do you got? Oh, the Cowboys. I'm with you. I'm with you, man. I I never would have thought that at the start of the year. And the first time these teams played, I felt the Eagles and I was confident about it. But after this 49ers game, I think there's some chinks in the armor here that got a little bit exposed by Shanahan and that coaching staff. Dallas is playing some pretty good football. I expect it to be a lot closer than the 49ers game. That's for sure. But I think Dallas can win that game. That's going to be a fun one. If they win that game, the one seed in the NFC suddenly becomes really up for grabs. And we would not have thought that a couple weeks ago when the Eagles were rolling with the best record in the NFL. It looked like they were going to run away with that one seed. But all of a sudden, started to get a little interesting. And that's why we love the NFL so much, man. I'm with you. Some big games down the stretch. College football playoff, like we talked about, is a few weeks away. Man, is that going to be awesome. NFL is in the home stretch. Buckle up, guys, because it is getting fun. And guys, if you enjoy the podcast, please do us a favor. Subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Really means a lot to us. But that is going to do it for today's episode. I'm Brad Fowler. He's Alex Higdon. This is Pint Glass Football, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to the Pint Glass Football Podcast. 
Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Twitter at PGF Podcast.